Welcome to Stand at the Table. We are friends in community, part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best relationships come when we are willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently. In this podcast, we're talking about the deconstruction of the Bible. We hope that you journey along with us as we listen and talk with each other as we express the different ways that we utilize to deconstruct and how we read the Bible to apply to our lives today. Enjoy. Hello, we are back. It's been a little bit because of all of our different schedules and all kinds of stuff happening this fall. We have not been able to record, but now we are back and we are so happy to be with you again. We have a couple of new things we want to tell you about. One of them is a new blog by Brian Chilcote, and it is called Pull Up a Chair. Get it? Get it? Staying at the table. Yep. Pull See up what a I chair. did there? See what he did there? <laughs> so it, uh, go to our website, uh, cornerstonewestchester.com, and find the blog, pull up a chair, and take a read, because a lot of them have to do with what we've been talking about having to do with hermeneutics, interpretation, just some deep, heady theological thoughts written by our very own Brian Chilcote. And we are here today again with the Reverend James Beatty. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Good to have you here. And we are also here with Brian Chilcote. I'm back. And our very own Matt Kissler is... Um, traveling abroad for the next few weeks, so he'll be back again soon. So we have been sitting here today kind of hanging out and talking, and we're going to bring the conversation to the table. And we have been talking about what happens when a person starts to deconstruct, what begins to unravel. And Brian made a really interesting point, and I'm going to pass it over to him in a minute, um, about what deconstruction does more than anything is create this uncertainty. And, and it creates this uncertainty with everything that we have deemed truth and that we have, have put our stake onto um, in this religious community, in, in the Bible, in what we believe. So, Brian, let's pick up from there, and then we'll go on into this conversation. All right, sure. Um, I think there's a couple things that, uh, well, themes, I think you could, that run through evangelicalism and other Western styles of Christianity that, um, one, well, they, they govern our approach to um, the Bible, but also our reality. Uh, one is that the Bible or that the words in the scriptures are uh, somewhat, uh, I don't think magical is the right word, but it's something like that. They're divine, they're of divine origin, they're God's words. And since God is immutable and unchangeable, we transfer that onto the Bible and say, well, these words, as they are locked on the page in English for us, must also be immutable and uh, unchangeable and a um, an unquestionable source of truth. And uh, 
the further we get from that feels scary when we hear people talk about how, well, we're not too sure that the author really said that or meant that. Um, so the other, um, I forgot what the other thing was. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pause there. Okay. Because, James, I want to hear you. So we were talking about the when the Bible was actually written, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. how the Bible actually came to be, how the New Testament, I'm sorry, Old Testament came to be. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so one of the places I, I constantly start when we talk about the writing of the Bible is the one quick question. Do you believe the words that are on the page were God dictated or inspired? Right. Dictation means the selection of a specific word at a specific time with a singular meaning. I don't think many people will sign up and say, yes, God was giving dictation to a scribe to write various words. So that's part one. Part two, when we think about language, we often don't process the reality that every language exists with different phraseology, right? There is no direct one-for-one holistic conversion from Hebrew to English. Right. And it didn't go from Hebrew to English. Greek and Latin was in between these. And everything else that was in between what we, what people back when I was growing up of saying the sanctity of the King James Version, right? So that is several versions later. And so it, it, that's when I, when I look at what was written, why, how it was written, and what its intent was is different from a, 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 the, the level of immutability it's in the morning, so some of my words are going to go together, uh, that we assign to the Bible today. It is just not accurate, and we have to get comfortable with that and understand that it doesn't change the importance of the Bible. Yeah. Do you remember, Brian, what the second well, one was? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a feeling that when we come to the Bible— we want uh, something structured and dependable, something stable, maybe even predictable. So when we find that single meaning, we're sure that we know that's exactly what God says, that's what I need to do, that's how I need to respond. Uh, I need to apply this to my life in these three ways, you know, and we can then move on to the next verse or chapter of Scripture. And you know, another thing we do is we chop it up into small bits. Usually we consume it on Sundays in a mm-hmm. sermon format. Um, and I don't think, for the most part, um, especially the longer uh, texts in the Bible, were meant to be consumed that way. Um, they're long and they're, they're uh, cohesive. They build an argument or paint a picture over all of the entirety of the text, not just, you know, a little chapter and verse. So we're really used to using the Bible as a kind of instruction manual or, you know, it's a very Western kind of way to see it, a self-help book where you can take a chapter and read it in the bathroom and know how to act um, toward your uh, other people in your life or whatever. 
And uh, as we uh, take a look at what the scriptures really are and how they functioned in the day that they were produced, it's quite different than uh, what we're used to. So that's one place where I think um, uh, deconstruction starts with a lot of people is they begin to think about that. Maybe they read a book or they hear a a podcast or, uh, you know, uh, read an article or, you know, something, and they begin to realize, wait a second, there's more to the Bible. It's a little more complex than I actually thought it was. Uh, Because, again, we tend to simplify it, um, and I think uh, our teachers and and folks who help us consume the Bible um, are really—they want to simplify it because they want to get the message out, and they want people to understand it and apply it and make their lives better. So that makes sense, you know, simplify something so that everybody can understand it. Um, However, I'm not so sure we can do that as much as we do with the uh, Bible. Well, I think about what James just said about, you know, a scribe sat there and God spoke it into their ear, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, it, it, it's so far from the actuality of it. And I just got done reading this book called uh, How the Bible Became a Book. And who is it by? William Schneiderwind. William, thank you. <laughs> you say that name. So, you know, and what this author was talking about was how many decades the Bible was handed down orally before it was ever written down, and and how, the, how few people actually even had the ability to read, let alone uh, study it. So I think that that's an important part, because the evangelical church has really made the Bible an idol and made the words in the Bible that this is the truth. And I'm thinking of right now, you know, tomorrow I'm preaching on in John 14 where Jesus goes, I am the way, I am the truth. And we have translated that, oh, Jesus is the word, therefore the word of God is also the word, big W, therefore the word of God is also truth. But that's really not how it came about. So, you know, and I think, James, you were talking about the layers of, you know, it went from oral tradition into somebody writing it down, into people transcribing it, into people adding on to that. Then you move to the language. Mm -hmm. So there are so many layers and centuries worth of interpretation here that the evangelicals, you just said, Brian, turned it into, no, this is the accurate truth and the accurate word of God, as opposed to it is an inspired thing. Yeah, and to look at the Gospels in particular, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we have these four, and there's long traditions about how to see those as, you know, the three synoptic Gospels that kind of say this, tell the same story. And then there's John, the fourth one that's very different from the other ones. Um, We read those, and when we say, uh, we read something like, and Jesus said, and then he tells a parable or makes a long speech or whatever. Um, we are used to seeing that as, oh, well, we don't know how it happens, but since it's the Word of God and God made those words happen in an English Bible, 
we think, well, Jesus, really, that's a quote that if we were there, he would be saying exactly what's there on the page (laughs) in maybe another language. But, you know, if we could understand Aramaic, yeah, we would be able to hear and translate exactly what it says um, in English. What we don't take into account is the many, many layers that are between the event that probably in a lot of cases actually happened and our reception of those or our understanding of those events. We really forget that, um, you know, the the events were written down long after they happened by people who were remembering, yeah. talking about it, developing it, thinking about it, um, even in some cases making a theology around it. Um, and, the, you know, those were compiled, understood, crafted into a, a, a work. Uh, all of the Gospels show very detailed and intimate knowledge of Greek and Roman rhetoric, uh, how, how a speech or a, a bio, biography— Or a was, letter was written. Or a letter, yeah, exactly. There were conventions that they had, just like we do today when we write an email. It's different than a text mm-hmm. or an academic book— reads very differently than a novel. So we have different conventions that go with different genres, things like that. Well, they did too. And you can uh, explore those rhetorical devices in all the Gospels. And they're very creative, uh, very well done. Um, And uh, that, though, speaks of the fact that this has been processed, this information that we're reading, the speeches of Jesus, of Paul, were reproduced well after the fact. And that's a scholarly consensus. That's not like a fringe view or an outside view. That's If you go to the academy, almost every scholar will tell you that's true about the Gospels and other books of the Bible. So what does this do for both of you to answer? James, I'll start with you. What does this do for how you view the Bible. So what is, it makes me want to go, what is truth, right? <laughs> so what do you do with this information? And you're, you know, you're a pastor, you're a reverend, you preach from this God, you preach from the Bible. What do you do with what we're talking about today? Yeah. So the first thing I do is process it through the lens of the Bible was captured historically in the same method every other writing of the time was captured. So there's nothing nefarious, right? So all the different um, things that we know of historical times about science and those mechanisms for capturing information is the same for the Bible. So I I, want to make sure people that are hearing this understand that part of this was the style of the day. And are there other parallels? Absolutely. So be comfortable with that. What it does is challenge us to now read the Bible without the context of what's been handed to us, right? So the majority of what we think about the Bible is not our own mental creation. Uh, It is what someone told me that I trusted told me. And what they told me was based on their own understanding of the world and of life. It has boundaries to it. But if I've grown up outside the boundaries of their mind, 
which when you start crossing cultures, you're absolutely crossing the boundaries of people's minds that I now must apply it uniquely and differently. It requires me to stay in communication with others who also have a desire to know a better understanding of truth because that's that human desire. What is truth? Well, you don't get that by narrowing it down to your own context only Mm. because that is not the creation of the world. Unless you think every other culture outside of yours was a mistake. And our Bible says God doesn't make mistakes. Um, you're probably not seeing the whole complexity of the world yeah. and the whole complexity of the Bible. So it forces us to do, I think, what Jesus and God wanted us to do, and that's to stay in communication and debate and talk and really search for what is God trying to communicate in these words that we have translated to our own context. And as the world becomes closer and we see more, That complexity grows and the Bible applies to that too. You, meaning me and all of us individually, are now having to understand year by year, how does the Bible apply to that as well? That's what it does for me. So it's interesting. What I hear you saying behind that is the Bible is not stagnant. Oh, no. It is fluid. And our understanding of it is. Our understanding yep. of the Bible yep. is not stagnant, it's fluid. It requires community for its fullest interpretation, community being other cultures, other perspectives, other viewpoints, um, and that really it's, it, is, it removes the expert from somebody on a Sunday telling us what we should believe to us owning it. Mm-hmm. ourselves for the discovery, not necessarily of the Bible as much as of who is God. Is that, is that valid? Yeah, yeah. And, and absolutely all of those things. I want to tee in on, on one piece where you see it about the experts, right? That's a, that's a, a phrase that we use within our culture. And it just says someone has studied and, has a perspective of it. I think it helps if the person that is speaking also outlines the context of which they are applying that word or that situation or that reading of the Bible, because it's all within context. The, they, they may be and have studied more than anyone on a specific topic related to the Bible within a certain context. It's not universal. Right. There's still an expert in that context for that topic for that time, but it's not universal. And it's not stagnant also. Correct. Yeah, you can really get into a rabbit hole with all, the, if you read all the scholars on a certain principle of Scripture, they all disagree uh, to some extent. And there's, there is something called a, a scholarly consensus, though, that I mentioned earlier that uh, tends to you know, a lot of the different viewpoints tend to kind of cluster around one probability. And that's another thing. We're we're dealing with ancient documents that were written in alien cultures a long time ago. Um, and uh, in order to figure them out, it does take study. And historians and others who study this kind of thing, they don't deal in certainty. They deal in probabilities and likelihoods. 
because we really don't know everything that there is to know about what it was like in the first century or how people consumed or heard or read these kind of documents or what they did with them, how they spread, how they were published. We don't know a lot. We know some, but we don't know a lot. And uh, what we can do is compare them to other documents that are contemporary to the time. We can make a lot of, um, you know, uh, important inferences and and uh, comparisons, and we can contrast them as well. Um, but yeah, I think for uh, as it applies to the idea of deconstruction, um, when we go there, I think what's well, one of the first places we go is the Bible. A lot of folks who talk about deconstruction and and as Tracy calls it, reconstruction or a you know a, a new move of God possibly. Um, the first step is to look at the Bible as being a lot less certain than they thought as we began our conversation. And um, that can be a little off-putting, or maybe a lot, for uh, some people who are used to seeing it as a special book that talks about them and it's personal and the possibility that they might be wrong about something they thought God said to them through the Scripture is a little makes you a little nervous. Um, and when you begin to go down this path, uh, as James was saying earlier before we were on, uh, you have to stick with the process and you don't don't bail out because you get a little upset or nervous. You start reading scholars, you start reading books, you start listening to different voices about uh, what the Bible actually is, how it was constructed, how it's put together, how it's been interpreted. Um, it takes a while. It's a long process. In fact, I I don't think it will really ever end for me. I think it's lifelong. Yeah, yeah. I, I do too. I think it goes on. But the journey's worth it because if you're interested in uh, what's real and what really matters, it's worth taking this journey. And it's it's serious too because it impacts your life in a lot of different ways. You know... One of the things that you just said about somebody getting nervous or or, or um, uncomfortable because of what they believe God spoke to them through the Bible, I'm actually more comfortable with that than I am with somebody saying, this is what it means for all time. I'm more comfortable with somebody going, this is what I believe I heard God speak to me through this for me, as opposed to... I'm going to now make a theology out of this and turn it into something bigger. I think the other thing that you said about scholarly agreement that I have a little bit of issue with, and that is it's been predominantly a male a male interpretation and most often a white male interpretation. And I think that what has been missing throughout the centuries is the female voice, the feminine, the divine feminine, the um, various cultural voices. So when I'm when I'm reading scholars, I personally have a bias because that's the first thing I go to is who are you and what is your culture? Because it it's forgive me for being so blunt, but it was like a a, a boys club. It was it and women's voices weren't allowed, nor other Cultural voices weren't allowed. Where are the African voices, which, by the way, is where it 
originated, but where are those African voices in in this work? And I know, like Augustine was believed to have been an African. I, I you know, people don't know, but you know, where are the Asian voices? Where are the Latino voices? You know, in in the scholars coming together. That's a great point when we talk about the interpretation and what what we understand to be the Bible universally today versus how the re, the unfolding of it in reality. And what I mean by that is this. You asked the question about where are there African voices, African-American voices, Asian voices, and others, uh, black and brown skin voices, uh, in our interpretation and realization of uh, what we now call Christianity today. Many people don't process the point that everything we discuss is around a question created by a culture, Mm. right? So what's important to me as an African-American male and the questions I ask about life is within that context. Mm -hmm. A woman, even an African-American woman, will ask different questions and seek different answers, And so everything about our theology and doctrine, to your point, Pastor Tracy, has been through dominant culture, white male. Those were the only questions asked and and answers sought all up until the 1940s. When you have thinkers like Howard Thurman, James Cone coming on the scene so for 50s, 60s, 1950s and 60s, before you ever start asking a new question. That's amazing to me. Yes. Well, you could even go back to the original documents. They were asking and answering questions that were important to that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, does the Bible or does the, the life of Jesus transcend even that? Yes, I think it does. But what we have in the Bible is the product of a certain culture at a certain time answering the questions that they needed to answer from the events of the life of Jesus and, you know, the disciples and all of those things that came about. So there you go. You know, even the originals that we have are somewhat culturocentric. Which is why I go back to, and you all know that my little tricycle, thank you, Richard Rohr, um, you know, that the tricycle, the big wheels experience, and the two little wheels, one is scripture, one is tradition. Because I'm not sure, you know, again, as we're going through John and I'm prepping and and getting ready to preach, you know, you see Jesus constantly pointing to his own self. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He doesn't say this, Mm -hmm. this, because there was no Bible there, Mm -hmm. right? And and he does quote from the Old Testament, but he doesn't say, hold on to that. He goes, I'm the fulfillment of it all. I am the personhood of who God is. So for me, experience weighs very heavy, you know, and, and a person's experience with that loving God and and Jesus saying, you know, or so it's written, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the law. I fulfill the law. I encompass it all. And I've once heard somebody say, you know, the word of God became flesh and grew a beard. It didn't go into a book, a magical book called the Bible. The word of God became flesh. Mm-hmm. 
So for me, that's where experience weighs very heavy. Alongside tradition and alongside scripture, mm-hmm. but the experience of who Jesus is, which is which is I think what happens to people is they equate the abuses or the difficulty or the dysfunction found in church with God. They're not even the same. Because I, I, I have journeyed with people who are deconstructing, mm-hmm. and they're deconstructing God. For me, you've now, you've now brought God into being the church and the word as mm-hmm. opposed to God is separate from that. What, what comes up for you when you hear that? Well, that is, those are really excellent points, and I've often thought that one of the things that gets you through a process of undoing, unlearning all of the things you thought were so sure and right, the one thing that can get you through that is a personal experience with it, uh, how it impacts you on a, a spiritual or a soul level, you know, experiences that you've attributed to the presence of the Holy Spirit or of God or of Jesus, um, you can hang on to those as a sort of anchor or a peg in the wall as all the other things sort of fall apart. And I think that can be really comforting and important to people as they go through it. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm thinking of long, uh, digesting that along two lines. So one is about the individual and how uh, they are looking at doctrine in uh, the Bible and, and how to, uh, without, or really encouraging them not to discount any of their experiences, right? That their experiences are not only valuable in, in the overall expression and the experience that they have with God and, and really encouraging them to lean into that versus ignore your experience. The, the, the Bible says this right. and the doctrine says that, right? It's, it, turns it on its head and says, no, your experience is first. And why is that? It's because our whole experience as humans has been to better understand and describe God. The problem with that is the limited ability of humans, not of God. Right. So when you deconstruct the Bible and doctrine and all these pieces— you're deconstruction, deconstructing the ability of other humans' ability to describe an awesome God. Mm. If we stay with one piece in my head, God is awesome. God is throughout all time. It's timeless, limitless. Our human brains have a hard try- time trying to describe that for you while you go through pain. Your experience. So now how do I use what you've already seen in the Bible and what we already have established as humans for doctrine and church that also covers your experience and also still communicates God is awesome? Mm. Yeah, so we don't throw out the Bible, I don't think, because it's important to understand other people's experience. That's what it is. It's it's a record of people's experience with un- trying to understand the ineffable, the divine, the, how God relates to humankind. And there's a lot of wisdom there, a lot to learn from that. So, you know, if you need to stop reading the Bible for a season, go for it. You know, do take a break, but then come back to it after you've learned a little more and see what's there. Well, what's interesting 
um, and you're saying that is I think we have read, especially the Old Testament, when they're talking about wars taking over land because God told them to. I and, and I've said this in previous podcasts. I think if we look at it as human beings writing about human beings, and just because they said that was God does not necessarily make it so. I always have looked at the Bible. I can newly have looked at the Bible in the past, you know, past five years or something, you know, that it speaks as much to humanities and humanities labeling of what is God and what is not God as much as it speaks to God. So, yes, we, we do consider the Bible as the inspired word while understanding how it came about and while understanding even where it falls short, if we could say that. So I think next time we're going to talk about something that I've just started reading calling a new New Testament where they bring in um, different ancient documents from the first to the fourth century by authors that uh, these were these were the books that were left out of the original canonization of the Bible. And they actually were called the pseudepigrapha, meaning false doctrine. So um, I just started reading this, and we're going to talk about this next time on our podcast. So we thank you for tuning in again today. We invite you to let people know about our podcast, Staying at the Table. Don't forget to read our blog. We also have lots of uh um, books and things on our on our website that can send you to deeper places to go and study all of this. And we have a whole library. And we have a whole library. And come, come and visit, hang out with us. I was going to say, come and visit Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. We'd love to have you and kind of journey with you. And uh, you know, I hope that we're we're kind of journeying around subjects and that we can find a way to stay at the table during different difficult conversations and and just talk and listen to one another. So thanks for joining us. Sign up, subscribe, join our podcast and tell your friends. God bless everybody. Thank you. Have a good day. Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saletta, Matthew Kissler, and James Beatty and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio. Got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed? Email us at adminccf at gmail.com. We'd love hearing from you. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out. And if you're feeling kind, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Find out more about staying at the table at cornerstonewestchester.com. Cornerstone.